Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, and getting into this passage, uh, an illustration comes into my mind from uh, endurance sports, endurance racing. I have a little bit of experience in this. I've dabbled over the years, haven't given myself to it as much over the last couple of years, but I've done a couple of really long foot races, and when you're on a really long race, you know, a trail race out in the wilderness, there are so many moments that come where it feels like you have the perfect excuse to quit the race. Uh, It could come through some kind of injury that you feel is developing in your body or that has happened with just one step, you know, in an ankle or a calf or something like that. You just feel this injury. Your body is at less than optimal condition, and so you feel like quitting. It could come through improper nutrition. When you're on a really long race, you have to continually be eating throughout the duration of the race, and you have to eat the right things. And if you eat things that you haven't trained with, your body could respond in a bad kind of way, and so you have to eat the right things. And so it could come from a lack of nutrition. It could come from a lack of hydration. You didn't drink enough water. You didn't get enough electrolytes into your system. It could come through uh, just simple fatigue. You didn't do the right training. You're out there and you realize in the middle of this race, I did not train correctly for this. And as your body is feeling all that fatigue and all of that, you become discouraged and you want to quit. Or I've experienced this one. It can come through sheer, total, blatant discouragement. I remember one of the first long trail races I ever did. I was out on the backside of Fort Ord, about 20 miles into this race, all by myself. As far as I could see ahead of me, I could not see another human being. And as far as I could see behind me, I could not see another human being. The sun was beating down upon me. I felt like I was John the Baptist on the backside of the Judean wilderness, all alone, by himself. I, this depression, like a cloud, came upon me. I almost just sat down and cried. I mean, it was like this weird emotional experience and I just knew like whoa this is not right I got to keep moving and push past this there are all these reasons that you will feel and experience to quit any act of endurance the Bible tells us that we are to we'll learn this in Hebrews chapter 12 run with race run with endurance the race that is set before us so there is there is a race in this Christian life it is going to require endurance. And the author today in the back half of Hebrews chapter 10 is going to talk to us about that subject. He's going to tell us that there are some in the Christian life who will not run the race with endurance. There are some who will quit the race because they did not have enough endurance to run the race. And what he's going to give us all throughout this text are different ways in which We can be strengthened so that we will endure. So I think a question that I would ask at the start of this teaching is, do you want to run this race with endurance? Do you want to last? Do you want to make it to the end of your Christian race having 
walked with the Lord, enjoyed the Lord, experienced the Lord, been fruitful for the Lord. Well, what this passage is going to give us are various ways that we can build up the endurance that God has for us. Six helps today for the endurance or the race that Christ has set before us. Now, all of this is built on everything that he's said up to this point. And what has he said up to this point? Well, let's read his recap of it in verse 19 uh, through verse 21. It says, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, which includes the sisters as well, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now let's pause right there at verse 21. In verse 20 and 21, what we have are the foundational uh, statements of what he's taught in the book of Hebrews. He's taught us that Jesus, by his blood, through his flesh, he is our way to God. That we get a full and complete relationship with God by the blood of Jesus, that he's fulfilled the old covenant. But we also learn, verse 21, that not only has his blood made the way for us into God's presence, but that Jesus himself has become our great high priest today over the true house of God. Not the tent or the tabernacle or the temple on earth, but the true house of God in heaven. So this is a synopsis, if you will, of Hebrews chapter 1 all the way through Hebrews chapter 10. So what he's saying here is, if all of that is true, if this is what we have in Jesus, that through his flesh, We go into the presence of God, and Jesus is our great high priest today. If that is true, then how should we respond? Well, he says there in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I realize that he's using lots of... uh, imagery, old te- he's using Old Testament imagery to color our New Testament relationship with God. He is talking to Hebrew Christians after all, so he's talking about bodies washed and our hearts sprinkled clean. But his big exhortation is simply this. Commune with God. Draw near to God. It's kind of like the most obvious application of everything that he's said up to this point that you could possibly come up with. I mean, everything he said for 10 chapters is, there's a throne room of God. It's impossible to get to by your own merit. The blood of Jesus gets you into the throne room of God. You can come boldly before his throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. He deposits his righteousness into your account that you could have friendship and fellowship. You can go behind the curtain into the presence of God. So let me think of applications, the author says, and here's the first application. You can go into God's presence, so do it. That's really what he's saying. Do it. Go into the presence of God. The first thing that we, we need to see from this passage that will help us to run the race is that we had better, number one, commune with God. We must go to him and experience him. We must enjoy him. Listen, if you have not yet learned how to practice a personal relationship with the God of heaven who sent his son to 
die on the cross for you, to shed his blood for you, I want to encourage you to begin to ask the questions that you need to ask so that you can learn how to have a personal relationship with the Lord. Because though his blood makes the way for you to draw near to him, you still need to actually draw near to him. You have permission to do it, but now you need to actually do it. It's not enough for us to clap and celebrate and say, praise Jesus, he made the way. No, we actually have to take the way and go in and spend time in the presence of the living God. And part of the reason I want to press on this today is because what he's going to encourage his audience with is, as I mentioned, endurance. And one of the things that we need to know is that we really don't stand a chance of making it for all that long in the Christian life, enduring well, if we don't learn how to personally pray, how to personally read the word, how to personally make that a regular part of our lives to enjoy the Lord personally for ourselves. So the first thing I want you to see is that we must commune with God. It's the access that Christ has opened up for us by his blood, and so now we can draw near to God. Let's move on, though, and look at the next thing that he says in verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, we're going to talk about this in a few moments because he has more to say about holding fast to our confession. So we'll pause that one for a moment. So let's look at his next exhortation in verse 24. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, these are actually very famous verses. We will often use these verses when talking perhaps to a Christian who, though they're a believer and they have, they can confess certain uh, doctrines and beliefs that a Christian would hold, they have disfellowshiped themselves. They've decided, I'm not going to have a church. I'm not going to be in fellowship with other Christians. I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the church. And oftentimes people will turn to these verses to try to urge them on back into Christian fellowship. He says, look, there are those who neglect to meet with one another. Don't be like those people. Instead, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, encourage one another, and do this all the more, increasingly so, as you see the day drawing near. But what I want you to see is that when he makes this statement, he is making it in the context of being concerned that his audience is not going to endure. And he's holding out for them a great secret to their endurance, a great secret to their success. He's saying, look, if you want to endure, this life is hard. This life is difficult, and it is painful to be a believer at times. So get yourself a church family and commit to that church family so that when you get together, you can encourage one another and stir one another up to love and good works because 
It's hard enough to do love and good works without that encouragement, and you're going to need that encouraging word in your life. So the second thing that I wanted you to see for running this race is number two, we must stir up and meet with one another. Now I'm the pastor of a local church, so you know I'm going to talk about this point for a second. This is one of my favorite little passages right here. And part of the reason I want to talk about it is because we are being told today that in general church attendance is down and that one of the big reasons is because atheism is so rapidly advancing and growing. And that what you have are many men and women who have decided that they no longer believe in the God of the Bible and they've decided to depart from Christian fellowship. But though there might be some truth in the idea that secular atheism is on, or secular humanism is on the rise, there's other evidence that suggests that human beings are just as spiritual and believing as ever, but that it's not so much a rise in unbelief, but a rise in belief that does not have to belong to a community. In other words, I can be spiritual, I can believe, but I don't need a community of faith. Listen to a statement like this. Organized religion is bad. Personal spirituality is good. I think probably many even Christians would hear a statement like that and say to themselves, yeah, that sounds right. Religion, we don't like the religion word. We might even say it like this. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. And look, that is a truth that God's word backs up, but if that is code for you for, so I don't need a community of faith, you're in danger of error. The Bible teaches no such thing. The Bible teaches that we need the body of Christ. Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against this thing that he initiated and created called the church. In fact, in the early days of church history, they got together because false doctrines were beginning to build and they wrote what we now call the Apostles' Creed. It's a, it's a very basic form of Christian doctrine that in general Christians adhere to. Did you know that there's a line in the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, when they wrote that, they had no concept of Roman Catholicism. They weren't writing about Roman Catholicism. What they were writing about was the universal church that Jesus established here on earth. And what they were saying was, I believe in the church. I believe that there are many modern Christians who actually couldn't make that creedal statement. Because they don't believe in the church. They don't believe in the body of Christ. They don't believe that it is important to gather together, to study the word of God together, to be with one another that they might be built up uh, for their most holy faith, encouraging one another to love and to good works. Our culture, and I think that so often when a believer slips into this error, it's act, though they might try to build a big biblical argument for it, I think so often it's not because of biblical reasons, it's because 
We live in a culture right now that is suspicious of all institutions. It's just the spirit of the age, and the spirit of the age affects Christians as well as non-Christians. And when that spirit gets into a human heart, they begin to be suspect or suspicious of even the body of Christ. Our culture prefers networks and loose affiliations. Amen. Let's keep it relaxed while feeling uncertain and untrusting of institutions. But I want you to listen to this quote by a theologian named Ray Ortland in an article called, Is Your Church an Institution? Listen to this. He said, an institution is a social mechanism where life-giving human activities can be nurtured and protected and sustained. Like one example of this is the institution of family. It's one reason why the devil is attacking the family like crazy. Because in the family, we're supposed to learn so many values that are embedded deep inside of us. But if the devil can attack and disrupt the family, then we won't in that institution learn the values and have them embedded into us for the betterment of society. So he'll attack the family. So an institution is a social mechanism where life-giving human activities can be nurtured, nurtured and protected and sustained. Some aspects of life should be unscheduled, spontaneous, random. Some of you like that line, right? Oh, that's how I want life to be, unscheduled, spontaneous, random. But he says, but not all of life should be. What an institution does is structure a desirable experience so that it becomes repeatable on a regular basis. Institutions are not a problem. An institution is meant to enrich life. So thinking about that in the body of Christ, we gather together, we're studying the word, we get together for prayer and community. These are things that have been formalized to a degree because we realize that they're going to lead to our health and our mutual encouragement. It is impossible to live this Christian life alone. But unfortunately, it was in that era, just as it is in our era, verse 25, the habit of some. Now notice what happens when we give ourselves to the body of Christ. Notice it in verse 25. We are stirred up to love and good works. Now I'll ask you this. How many times have you had a desire in your heart, some, some loving thing you wanted to do, some good work thing that you wanted to do, you knew in your heart of hearts, when you hear about it, you think about it, you think, that's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of thing that I want to do. But by yourself, you did not find the motivation to actually take the step to do it. But when in Christian community, someone is able to say to you, you should do it. You should go for it. And by speaking to each other, we step out and try and do things that we normally would not do. And here's the kicker. When we are in that part of community, it lionizes us. It emboldens us. Why does it embolden us? To try loving and good works things. Here's why. Because when you have a loving community that you're in, you could try stuff and fail and know that they'll still love you. So God puts things on your heart that you want to try to do, they're praying for you, they love you, they care about you, they know the real you and your truest intentions. You go out, you try, it doesn't work, you come back to the group, you say, you know, I tried, it did not work, I failed miserably, and they say, that's okay, we still love you. You see, when you're part of that community, it gives you a new and fresh boldness to take creative risks for the Lord. So how can we meet together, as he tells us to in this passage? Well, we gather on Sundays, for one. 
We also can gather in small groups, like in our life group ministries. Another way is you can join into a prayer meeting with other believers. Say, hey, let's get together at such and such a time and place and let's pray for such and such an issue or thing. You can join a serve team or a ministry. That, to me, is one of the greatest ways to, to engage and be encouraged by other Christians is to find those who are doing something for the Lord and join together with them. They will greatly enrich your faith and you theirs. Or a discipleship group, a, some, a group that's reading through a book or reading through scripture and, and where someone is trying to pour into the lives of others. These are some of the ways that we can meet together. All right, let me go on in the passage in verse 26 and read forward into this next section. And I have to warn you, this is a very serious section that we're heading into. You're saying to yourself, this already seemed really serious. Well, it gets more serious. Let's read it together. Verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now this probably wasn't like a Bible verse that you decided to send to a friend this last week. Like, I just have a real encouraging verse for you. Here it is, Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. He talks about this person who sins deliberately and he says they're in jeopardy, they're in real danger spiritually. There's no more sacrifice for sins it's only Jesus' sacrifice that's sufficient. There's no other. And for them, there's a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire, he says, that will consume the adversaries. So the question that, that we should have about this sentence, these two verses, is simply this. When he talks about a person sinning deliberately in verse 26, what does it mean to sin deliberately? What is in the author's mind on this point? Now, some of us might think that all it means is, well, it's the opposite of sinning accidentally. You know, you're, you, you know what you're doing. You know that you're entering into it. You know you want to do it. You've made a decision. And so you have sinned on purpose. You've lied. You have been puffed up with pride. You've hated. You've been angry. You've cheated. You've decided to lust and give in to lust, or sins of omission. You've decided not to evangelize, not to pray, not to be generous. And we might look at those things and say, you know, I do some of those things in a deliberate kind of way, a non-accidental way all the time. So is he saying, let me ask you this, is he saying after building up for 10 chapters this great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, and this great high priest who, by the way, Hebrews chapter 4, bears with us in our weaknesses, is he saying after all of that, you have this access to God, he's cleansing you from your sin, he realizes that you're weak, that he had to come, is he saying after all of that, but once you're in, if you ever commit a deliberate sin, you're out. I, th I think that would violate the whole spirit of the argument that he's trying to develop. Rather than answer the question for ourselves, I think we should just read on and let the author answer the question for himself because he's going to answer the question in verse 28 and following. And as we read this, I want you to remember who he's battling for. 
He's not battling for uh, just a run-of-the-mill church. He's battling for Jewish Christians who were being tempted to go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system and deny the sacrifice that Jesus gave to us on the cross. So let's read it in verse 28. He says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, in the Old Testament law of Moses, the Old Covenant, there were certain laws for the people of Israel that if you broke those laws, not all of them, but there were some that if you broke them, then you were uh, eligible for the death penalty. We don't have a whole lot of stories of it actually happening in Israel's time, but it was designed to be a check on evil amongst the covenant community of faith. And so he says, look, there were some that on the evidence of two or three witnesses, people would die for. How much worse punishment, verse 29, do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? What he's saying here is that there is one big crime that puts someone in the camp of deliberately sinning. And the big crime is broken down into three separate pieces. Number one, notice it there in verse 29, this person tramples underfoot the Son of God. In other words, this person maybe used to confess Christ, but now they disdain Christ. They say, I have no need of him. His sacrifice is not important. It is not sufficient. Not only that, not only have they rejected and turned from Christ, but number two, it says they profaned the blood of the covenant. The New King James Version says they call the blood of Jesus a common thing. In other words, they say the blood of bulls and goats is better than the blood of Jesus. I don't think it does anything. I don't think it's effective for anything. They've profaned the blood of the covenant and number three, notice it there at the end of verse 29, they outraged the Holy Spirit. That's another way of saying they insult or mock the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible teaches that there is one major sin that God will hold mankind accountable for, and it's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of God is communicating that Jesus died on the cross for the sin of the world. But when somebody rejects that message, they will be held accountable because they've outraged, they've insulted, they've mocked the Spirit of God. What this person is that we're reading of here is an apostate person. They used to confess Christ, but now they've made a decision. I do not need the blood of Jesus. I do not need the gospel. And I do not believe that this is from God, this message, I reject it wholeheartedly. God says of them in verse 30, for we know him who said, this is from Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I realize this is all serious stuff. I remember when I was a little boy and my parents started introducing the sport of baseball to me. They gave me a plastic wiffle ball bat or a plastic baseball bat and, and, and wiffle balls, plastic baseballs. And I'd play around in the backyard and swing my bat around. And when I became you know, six years old or so, they asked, you know, do you want 
to play Little League Baseball. Do you want to actually play this game, get on a team and all of that? And I said, yes, you know, I wanted to. And I remember, you know, going there to those first practices, you know, and you got all these little five and six-year-old boys and girls with holding not plastic bats anymore, but real aluminum baseball bats. You know, I, I used to be a softball coach for little kids that age. It, that's a dangerous moment when they all pick up their bats for the first time. One of the first things, the first day of practice, it's we are going to learn bat safety. You know, you take the bat, you hold it down below your waist, you wait to look around till you're in the batter's box, people are clear. Then you could put it on your shoulder. Then you could take a swing. But I remember, you know, them giving us helmets, giving us aluminum bats, you know, standing in the batter's box and looking behind me. And there's this kid, you know, with a cage on his face and padding on the front of his body and just thinking to myself, like, this is a dangerous sport that I am entering into. This is the real deal. No more plastic bats and plastic balls. Like I could really legitimately get hurt playing this game. And listen, a passage like this, the second half of Hebrews chapter 10, it's one of those types of passages for us. It helps us understand that the Christian life is a battle. It is a war. There is difficulty that is attached to it. And one of the things that he wants us to learn here is that we must hold tight to our gospel confession. That's the third thing I wanted you to see. We must hold tight to our gospel confession. That's why in verse 23, backing up a bit, he said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What you have here in this apostate person is a person who came to disrespect the gospel. And the one who brought it in Jesus. And the one who communicates it in the Spirit. So if we're going to hold fast to our gospel confession, what must we do? Well, it stands to reason that we should do the opposite. We should appreciate the gospel. We should appreciate Jesus. And we should respond to the Spirit. What are one of, what's one of the greatest ways for us to be a people who hold tight to our gospel confession? I'm just going to say it like this. Know the epistles and know the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of you, when I say epistles, you're like, I do not know what you are talking about. That is a Bible word. These are the letters of the New Testament. Read those letters, study those letters, listen to people teaching those letters, get a good little commentary that explains those letters because as you go through them, what you're going to read about are the implications of the gospel. What did Jesus do when he was dying on the cross for you and me? The epistles so often explain it. So know the epistles and know the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That will help you cultivate a respect for what Christ has done for you. All right, let's move on in the passage so that we can get to the end of this chapter. It says in verse 32, you guys with me still this morning? He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. He's likely not just talking about like prison ministry, although that's a beautiful thing in our modern era, but he's talking about prison ministry to prisoners who became such because they were Christians. They've been arrested because they were believers. And you joyfully accepted, verse 34, the plundering of your property, 
since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is where the author is really saying, hey, look, put on your helmet. This is a, this is a, a life, and when he reminds them, he says, you guys, when you first became believers, you went through a lot of suffering. He talked about their hard struggle in verse 32, which is connected to embracing the mission of Jesus. That's a hard struggle. He talked about their sufferings, verse 32. Particularly the sufferings that came from being a Christian. You know, the the persecution, the difficulty, the pouring out of their blood, sweat, and tears for the body of Christ. He talked about their ridicule, verse 33. They had public exposure to reproach and affliction. They were made fun of and persecuted verbally because of their faith. They went through marginalization for Christ. They're also in verse 33, becoming partners of those who endured affliction. They were harassed for Christ, some of them even thrown into prison. And some of them were even plundered of their physical possessions. That meant that they dealt with economic persecution because they were a Christian. In other words, On the resume here, I see it says you have a church family that you're part of. I'm putting that all together. You're a Christian. Well, I can't bring you into my team. I can't abide with people who would hold the views that you hold. They had experienced that kind of persecution in the era that they were living in. Look, the fourth thing I wanted you to see that might help you to live a life of endurance for Christ is, number four, expect suffering for Christ. Expect suffering for Christ. Now look, I, I, don't want you, I, I don't want you to get a doom and gloom feeling about everything that you see in this world. And I, for one, am not a person who believes everything that I read that's being promoted out there. I don't know that people always are feeling exactly as we're told that people are feeling in this modern era and world. And Additionally, I don't think that there's any problem that Jesus looks at in humanity that he's pulling his hair out just stressed over it like, what am I going to do? They're thinking that now? Oh, no. You know, that's not Jesus. His gospel can reach into any human life. There is nobody that he feels is beyond his grace, beyond his reach. There is no philosophy or ideology that he feels that he cannot handle and answer and rebut. So I think these are exciting times that we are living in as a church. But I do want to pastorally prepare you well. You should expect some suffering for Christ. I think we need to watch out for a prosperity gospel. I realize when I talk about the prosperity gospel or prosperity doctrine, what most of us might think of are, you know, flamboyant televangelists wearing purple suits with big hair and making an appeal to the congregation like, hey, my private jet is really getting old and I need a new private jet. It's time to have a fundraiser so I can go throughout the world, you know, preaching the everlasting gospel or something like that. That might be what we think of when we think of the prosperity gospel. But I think there is a more subtle prosperity gospel that we could easily slip into. And it's the one that says, if you do the disciple life, 
if you do disciple things, you could still be cool. You could travel the world and have an attractive spouse and know fascinating people. You can have great taste and style and eat great foods and drink great coffee and be in world-class shape and accumulate wealth for yourself and basically live the dream, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea so often, and this is often communicated via social media by even various celebrity pastors and the like, who are communicating a message like, look at what I have and the viewers are left to deduce that's because you live the disciple life. And if I live that life, then maybe I can be those things. Maybe I can have those things. And the idea then would be that if you don't live that way and your life doesn't look that way, then somehow there must be something wrong with your walk with Christ. This is the error that Job's friends made when Job fell into catastrophe in his own life and his physical health was touched from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. They said, there must be something wrong with you, Job, that you're going through this. And there is a, a devilish, wicked little thing inside of our human hearts that even when the gospel has saturated it, when we see someone who is suffering, we see someone whose life is less than Instagram gl glamorous, we tell ourselves there must be something wrong with their Christianity. There must be something wrong with the kind of walk with God that they have for look where they are in life. But we must fight against that spirit. And we must say to ourselves, no, there is suffering that is attached to this Christian life. One day, Jesus had a young recruit who wanted to be part of his team. Jesus gave him a speech, a little pitch. This is how it went, Luke 9, verse 58. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That was Jesus' way of saying, you want to be on my team? You want to be on my team? You look and you see, you think it's glamorous. You think it'd be nice to cruise around and miracles are happening and stuff's going on and the crowds are there. You think that'd be nice? Well, let me tell you about my team. It's a tough team. It's hard. There's pain. There's difficulty that's attached to it. No, we've got to expect a little bit of suffering for the cause of Christ. You see, the second that you think that you will not suffer for Jesus, that's the second that you open up your heart to great changes in your doctrine because the only way that you'll be able to be compatible with the world that you are living in is if you change your doctrine. Because what you believe is increasingly going to be rejected and incompatible with the world that you live in. So you must expect suffering for Christ. Therefore, verse 35, moving on in the text, he says, do not throw away your confidence which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The author feels at this point that he's got to talk a little bit about heaven. Because as he's going through this, he's saying it is hard, it is difficult. There is a confession you're going to be tempted to open up to give away. So one thing that you have to do 
is you must remember the great reward. You must remember what God has promised for you. We're gonna read of this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, that they waited for a better country that is a heavenly one. That's where their hearts, the people of faith, have been fixed on a better country, a better humanity, a better world that Christ is building, not here on earth, though we might fight for a better country here on earth, but a heavenly one eternally with him. If you want to endure, number five, you must do this. You must look forward to the great promised reward. You must look forward to the great promised reward. Now, there was an idea that was floating around the church years ago. I think some people still have this idea today. And the idea went like this. We should not be so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly good. You ever heard that one? I won't ask you if you've ever said it because I'm going to try to debunk it right now. But I know I've even thought that before, you know, like some person that's so ethereal, I think, is the idea there, that their, their head is in the clouds, they're just, you know, thinking about the Lord all the time, and that's all they're doing. I've never met a person like this that actually is so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good, but it was a saying for a while, a thought for a while. Well, C.S. Lewis wrote a little bit about this in his book, Mere Christianity, and I want to read you a quote from this. He said, if you read history you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next or the next world. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, in other words, on foot, they went throughout all of the Roman Empire and people got saved, the church was established. The great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth, you know, they changed earth, precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. There, and there is a strain, even, even an orthodox, solid, biblically strain of the church in our modern world that is becoming so infatuated with making a difference on earth that they've forgotten about the promised reward. And eventually, forgetting the vertical and only thinking of the horizontal will make them ineffective in the horizontal. If you want to be truly effective in the horizontal here on earth, you must be thinking about the vertical, about heaven. I think even the cross shows us that as it goes up and as it goes side to side, as it is vertical and also uh, horizontal. But how does that help us resist the temptation to quit? How does that help us resist the temptation to quit? Well, when your focus is entirely on the things of earth, what you eventually become is an earth-only believer. And when your focus is only on earth, it becomes dangerous because eventually you realize that so many of the things that you're getting from the body of Christ, you could actually get from the world as well. I want to read you a quote from Another quote, I'm sorry for so many of them this morning, but from Mark Sayers in his book called Disappearing Church, 
he said it like this. He said, in a world that's so beautiful, or in the beautiful world, you know, we're, we're thinking about the horizontal. I love the horizontal, you know. There is a point in which many realize that while their hip and fantastic church may offer them opportunities to engage in justice projects, a life group that meets for community and meal at the pub, and digestible life advice, here's what they realize. They can leave the church and find similar opportunities. The kicker is that you can still enjoy all of those things while ditching the biblical prohibitions on sex or having to measure up to the limitations of biblical holiness or the commitments of creedal Christian community. If you still want to keep your sneaker toe in the Christian camp, no problem. You still want to say, you know, I'm a Christian. You know, I'm not like super serious about it, but I'm still a Christian. Just pick up a book or subscribe to that podcast by a, quote, progressive Christian author who will reassure you that you can still be a Christian while not getting too stressed out about sex, you know, biblical sex ethic, or scripture, or going to church. In an increasingly world-focused evangelical church, what looks like leaving faith or the church to the actual lever simply seems, it just feels, it looks like a small shimmy to the left in which the beautiful world promises that you can have it all. You see, it's important what, he, what he's communicating is, and we can have it all. We have to have a hope in heaven in order for us to be of actual earthly good. And when that promised reward is in your mind, it changes the way that you live today. Did you know that in the late 90s, stock in Apple, the company, was selling for about a dollar? If you had the information in the late 90s, if you were alive at that time, if you, if you were, were around and you had the knowledge the, the, of what would happen to that company in the years to come, what do you think you would have done with that knowledge that Apple stock was a dollar? You'd have bought a whole grip of it, you know? We'd have a new church sanctuary already, you know? <laughs> like These things would take place because you, you would invest in the future. With the knowledge of this promise, this hope that is coming for us, it changes the way we live life today. All right, let's close with verse 37 to 39, and I'll give you the last concept, which really we're going to look at in the weeks to come. He says in verse 37, he says, for, and this is from a quote from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, he says, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Are you gonna say amen to that? Like, we are not of those. We're not gonna shrink back. We're not gonna be destroyed. We're gonna keep moving. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He gives that quote to highlight this last final sixth thing. If you want to endure, you're going to have to live by faith. You're going to have to learn to live by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, that's what it's all about. He's going to expand this idea with the great hall of faith, pointing out different characters from the Old Testament who live by faith. He's going to define what faith is and teach us how to live by faith. So I'm not really going to talk about this one today, but this is important. We must learn to live by faith. This kind of life, it just takes a long time. It takes a long time just living by faith. 
So, as I wrap all this up, and I realize this is a serious passage. I prayed about it this week, you know, as I'm preparing it. You know, I know which passages ahead of time have a more serious tone and which ones are a little more easily digestible. I love the Bible, man. I love going through it. I love the stuff that's difficult, that's hard, that speaks very pointedly to us. And I love the parts that are just very encouraging and uplifting and, and aren't as confrontational. You know, I love all that. But, I, but I, as I go into a passage like this, what would the human temptation be? The human temptation, and I'm a human, would be soften it up. You know, tr- try not to make it tough because, you know, that's, that's hard. But I want to communicate what the Scripture is communicating. And this is a serious section of Scripture where, like I said earlier, it's like the author is saying, put on your helmet. There's a race that we're running. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. So I've told you today from this passage, I'm not just suggesting these myself, I'm standing on Scripture when I say, commune with God, stir up and meet with one another, hold tight to your gospel confession, expect suffering for Christ, look forward to the great promised reward, and learn to live by faith. And when I say those things, or maybe one or two or three of those things, that as you think about them, you realize I've neglected those. I've kind of let those go by the wayside. And what I'm going to do right now is tell you a thing and then lead you in a prayer for a thing. The thing I'm going to tell you is, this is part of what grace is. We so often think of the grace of God as this thing that is never confrontational. That's grace. That's not grace. Grace is in the midst of that confrontation, God says, hey, come here, I still love you. Come here, I still want to help you. Come here, I know you're in that conviction that the Spirit's bringing into your life, but I still got something for you. But too many people think grace is, no, 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 I don't have any conviction ever. That's not grace. God's grace is trying to bring you in. And then the thing I'm going to lead you in prayer for is, I want to give you a chance to confess to God in prayer before him right now to say, Lord, would you forgive me? I've neglected the meeting together with saints. Or I've neglected holding fast to the gospel. I haven't expected suffering for Christ. And I want to lead you in prayer for that. So let me close in prayer. I'm just going to dismiss the worship team this morning. I'm going to close just leading in prayer in this way. So Father, thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for this way in which you Lord, speak to us to run with endurance, and we want this, Lord. Thank you for being honest with us about this Christian life. It is not you who have ever painted it in some kind of easy believism kind of way. You have shown us time and time again that there will be a suffering that is attached to the faith, but that there is this great and promised reward that you've given to us. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.